session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Well, this is my first live show in about two weeks, because I uh, was gone all of last week and got back on Monday, so I didn't get to do my show Monday night either. It's nice to be back. And also because it's been a while, I have a little bit of catching up to do. So that's what I'll be doing on today's show. In the first segment, I'll talk about the book of the week, really, which was from two weeks ago, The Moral Animal by Robert Wright. And then in the next segment, I'll talk about the book of the week from the past week, which was The Passion Paradox by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. And then also on today's show, uh, for the second half of the program, I'll be joined by Parsa Pekar, who you may be able to remember he was on the show back in December. And with him, um, I've had the opportunity to go to the Twin Towers Jail here in Los Angeles to uh, meet some of the inmates and create relationships there. But he's going to be here today to talk about the Hidden Treasure exhibition, which is happening this Saturday in Los Angeles. Um, and we'll talk more, but it's going to be showcasing artwork, poems, and inspirational writings from the inmates at the Twin Towers Correctional Facility. Uh, and I also have the opportunity to be on uh, the panel uh, of speakers that did that evening. Uh, so that's this Saturday, April 27th, 2019, um, at the Loose Art Gallery, L-U-Z, on Melrose Avenue. But I'll be posting a picture of the flyer on my yeah, social media, so you can check that out. But I'll be joined by him for the second half of the show. And then also, because uh, it's another week, there's another book of the week. And so the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is How to Deal with Anger, a five-step CBT-based plan for managing anger and overcoming frustration by Isabel Clark, How to Deal with Anger. And I don't know much about this book, another judging it by its cover scenario, uh, but I wanted to do a book related to anger. People often ask about anger, anger management, and I have some thoughts about it myself, but looking forward to reading this book and sharing it with you on Monday's show next week. All right, but first, let's talk about the book from two weeks ago, The Moral Animal by Robert Wright, Why We Are the Way We Are, The New Science of Evolutionary Psychology. And this is a classic book in the realm of evolutionary psychology, which I'll talk about. My brother had told me about when he read it a while ago, and the book itself is from, I think, 1994, so about 25 years old now, but really a classic and a great book that outlines and gets into a lot of detail about this field, he says the new science on this cover, it's becoming less brand new, but still new, uh, of evolutionary psychology. And uh, definitely really, I really enjoyed this book because of the depth it got into. And a lot of the topics he covers in the book, I realized I had learned in a couple anthropology classes I had taken back at UCLA, 
with the great professor, uh, Dr. Daniel Fessler. My friend Sina uh, also was familiar with him and took classes, and actually he recommended I take that professor. But when I read this book, I realized a lot of it was things that would be covered in those classes. So talking first just about evolutionary psychology and what that is. So when we look at evolution, we usually think about physical parts of the body. So we look at, let's say, a bird's wings, and we see that over time it was uh, adaptive or the birds who had some sort of wing-like feature might have survived. Let's say if they fell out of a tree, they were more likely to survive. And then uh, over time, they evolved because of variations and mutations to have wings. And that then today we have birds that can fly. And so um, this theory of natural selection that was brought forward by Charles Darwin, but not just him, and the book gets into the history of that as well. Um, but we, we tend to think more about the physical aspects of things. But this new science of evolutionary psychology, as the title uh, implies, is looking at how our psychology, the way we think, the way we feel, has also gone through the process of natural selection and evolution. And to me, this makes complete sense. Some people are not in favor of evolutionary psychology, or they might dismiss it in a lot of ways. But to me, it makes complete sense that our feelings, the way we think, the way we even perceive things is going to be also the subject of evolution over time. And we have evolved uh, in our psychological sense as well um, to survive, or at least to reproduce and to pass on our genes. And that means also that our brains are not just made to see the world accurately or to feel good even or be happy, but really they are there as part of the rest of us to pass on our genes. And so to me, this makes complete sense. And we should think about and view everything we experience as human beings and try to understand it also in this mindset of evolutionary psychology. So um, also when we look at this idea of how we have evolved, and our psychology, we have to keep in mind when we are talking about, because there's a lot of ways that our psyches are not built for today's world, because how we understand it, we evolved in these hunter-gatherer tribes, and that's when our brains really have evolved. That's the, um, the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, which makes sense to function in that type of a society. But unfortunately, because we don't live in that society, we sometimes are at what you, you can call a disequilibrium, and we don't always uh, have the best, um, we're not always equipped to deal with this world. For example, we have an affinity towards sweet things because sweet things were rare in our ancestral environment, and you'd come across fruits and things like that rarely, and it was actually good for you to want to eat more of it. So even we could see that it tastes good because it helped us eat more of it because we would want to eat more of these calorie-packed foods when we came across them because that would lead to us being more likely to survive. But unfortunately, in today's day and age, you can come across large quantities of sweets without any effort whatsoever, and this could lead to health issues. So this tendency or this temptation for fruits or for sweets that we have can now backfire and we have to actually almost curb it and control it so that we don't eat in a way or consume things that would be unhealthy for us. So that's one way we can see how, although we've evolved in a certain way, our current environment doesn't match exactly the environment we evolved in. And so it could lead to issues and problems uh, that can actually hurt us rather than help us. 
And so the whole concept of evolutionary psychology is that we have this way of thinking and feeling, but we have to be aware also that this doesn't mean it's right. And this is actually one of the ways that evolutionary psychology has faced some backlash. Because, for example, if you look at what people are attracted to, and men tend to be attracted to beauty and youth, because that's what's in their best interest. If they want to have especially a long-term partner, they want someone who has a lot of their reproductive potential left, which means they're younger, and also beauty reflects some level of genetic uh, strength, and so they're going to be attracted to those things, whereas women are going to be more attracted to status and things like wealth, which might not have existed as much before, but especially status, is going to be more attractive to women. And this is what we still see. We still see that these are the things that men and women tend to be attracted to. Now, does that mean it's right for them to be attracted to or morally correct? And that's even the title of the moral animal. Does it mean it's morally right? No, not necessarily. It just means that's how we have evolved and we could understand it. Or even infidelity. This is one um, that could rub people the wrong way when we see that it can make evolutionary sense for a man to be uh, unfaithful in certain ways because by giving just a few minutes of their time, they could potentially have a child that then would pass on their genes so it can make sense to them and unfortunately a lot of men might use this if you want to call it really logic but i don't think it's logic so much to justify their behavior to say see it's it's natural which is another thing we can talk about the naturalistic fallacy it's natural for me to be unfaithful or to to have an affair because it's in our dna so to speak now these same men that might say uh, and become strong evolutionary psychology supporters by saying it's in their DNA to be unfaithful might not like to hear that it could also be in women's interest genetically to be unfaithful as well because they might be able to acquire resources from other men that could then help them and help their offspring survive. So a lot of men who will say, yes, I need to spread my genes and that's why I might act in this way and they think it'll make sense and like this concept of evolutionary psychology supporting that type of behavior won't be so happy to hear that their wives would also benefit in some way or might be in their DNA as well. Or ultimately, for a woman, it could be beneficial to uh, have intercourse with a more superior male who's stronger, but then have one who's more nurturing raise that child. That would be in some way ultimate because they would get the strongest genes, but then also get the most nurturing and, and get that uh, those children taken care of in the best way. And this would make evolutionary sense, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's morally right or good or that we should think of it in that way. And so that's what I mentioned before of the naturalistic fallacy. There is this tendency to think that if something is quote-unquote natural, that makes it good. So if there is something in a way natural about being unfaithful that makes it morally okay or even good to do when that's not necessarily the case. We don't want to look at that as the reason to justify something as good. And people do this with um, lots of things, even substances. Well, marijuana is natural. It comes from the ground, so it has to be good for us. And no, that's not necessarily true. Marijuana isn't all bad either, but we don't want to just say because it's quote unquote natural, it's good. There's mushrooms that could kill you that grow in the ground. So it doesn't mean anything that's natural is good for you. It means that it's just, yeah, it's natural, it's there, but it doesn't justify it or morally make it okay or good. And so um, the book also looks at something very interesting in this concept that a lot of what we feel 
or a lot of what we even are not aware of unconsciously, it might be towards our survival. But as I mentioned before, it doesn't necessarily mean it's accurate. For example, in keeping track of what you've done for other people and what they've done for you, it might make some evolutionary sense for you to be slightly biased towards favoring what you've done for others and forgetting what they've done for you a little bit more to always feel like they owe you because then you might try to get even more from other people. And research has shown this, that people aren't so good at their bookkeeping when it means taking uh, account of what they've done for others and what people have done for them because it would be in our favor to see things in this way. Or even feelings we have towards other people. When you meet someone new and they're of a higher status, it can make sense for you to like them or to see them in a positive light. And he shares stories, including uh, many of uh, Charles Darwin himself, of how he felt these things about mentors or people when he first met them, but later on when he himself became more successful, he didn't feel that same way. And so uh, looking at this book, you see a lot of examples of things that don't always feel so good. For example, parents, when they have a child who is better looking or looks better, are more likely to favor that child than if they have a not so good looking child. We would hope that everyone just loves their kids and we have this love for all of our children equally, but it can make evolutionary sense to favor certain children or to favor your sons if you're wealthy, but to favor your daughters when you're not so wealthy. And there's some research showing that because a son could then, by being wealthy, have some kind of evolutionary success. But if you have a son and a daughter and you're not very wealthy, you know that your son's potential is not very high as far as what he can do. But a woman, female, could be beautiful and then attract a more suitable partner. And even in saying these things, I can understand that it sounds very callous and makes us sound very shallow, but we have to understand that, as the title implies, we might want to be moral or think of ourselves in that way, but we are still animals. We are still living beings who have been the subject of evolution, and even our thoughts and feelings are subject to that as well. And so even good feelings we can have, like love, we can understand that it makes evolutionary sense, for example, for the mother to love her child because that makes it more likely that she'll invest in her child's sacrifice for this child to survive, and that'll mean that her genes would spread. If there was another mother who didn't have that same feeling towards her children, well, then she wouldn't invest as much, and her children would be less likely to survive, and they didn't survive, and that's why those genes are not currently in the gene pool. And I think when people hear that, sometimes it could feel like we're taking away all of the beauty if you want to call it that, in certain things like love. Like when we see the love of a mother for a child, it looks so beautiful. Um, But I don't think it has to necessarily do that. Just because we understand something doesn't mean it has to take away how special it is. Just because, for example, now neuroscience might understand what's going on in the brain when you feel love, and we can see it's these neurotransmitters in this part of the brain and this kind of activity, it doesn't have to mean that the feeling of it is taken away or doesn't have to feel as special. So in understanding these things, I don't think we have to take away the significance of it and allow ourselves to feel it. But I do think, as he points out several times in the book, that we do want to try to understand ourselves better, to understand why things feel the way they do and how our brain is actually so good at tricking us and even the unconscious makes a lot of sense that there's so much 
that happens outside of our awareness because that can help make it so these things actually keep passing on. So if I can trick myself into thinking certain things, it might help me be more likely to survive. Again, our brains, as much as they're very good at accurately understanding the world in some ways, it's not necessarily supposed to just be a machine that reproduces reality accurately. Because if I can somehow see the world in a way that makes it more likely that I will survive, that would make evolutionary sense to be passed on rather than someone else who might more accurately see the world, but might not promote their survival or their reproduction as much. And so the book really is fascinating as it gets into lots of different topics related to morality, love, altruism, um, families, why we would care to support our family members and how that might extend to caring for other people as well. And as I said, I don't think it actually limits the human experience, but it actually helps us expand it by understanding it more, becoming more aware of who we are, what we are, why we do what we do, why we feel the things we do. And this field of evolutionary psychology, which is still in a way new, um, I think is very promising and one that I'm happy that people are investing time into to better understand how our psyche has evolved and how we can make sense of things that are happening now based on understanding how we have evolved to get a better understanding of human beings and society and, and all of those uh, things. So this book is a classic for a reason. I think it's fantastic. The Moral Animal by Robert Wright, Why We Are the Way We Are, The New Science of Evolutionary Psychology. It's on the longer side of some of the books that we have for the books of the week, but um, I highly recommend it. And so that was that book. And after the break, I'll talk about the book from the past week, which was The Passion Paradox by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacqui. We'll be right back. back. So now in this segment, as I mentioned, I'll talk about the book of the week from this past week, The Passion Paradox, a guide to going all in, finding success, and discovering the benefits of an unbalanced life by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. Again, another book judged by its cover. Uh, we talk a lot about, or you hear a lot of talk about passion, finding your passion. And once you find it, making sure you live that life. But what that means is a lot more difficult than just cliche statements about finding your passion or you should do what you love or if you find a job you love you'll never have to work a day in your life all of which might be true but the actual execution of that is a lot more complicated so this book got more into detail about what passion even is and also how passion can be a gift and a curse and how you can try to use some of the tools or the the things they talk about in the book to make it more of a gift and not a curse in your own life. And even to begin with, they talk about how the word passion tended to be or originally was more about suffering and even like the passion of the Christ. And that was the only way the word was used for quite some time. And then it slowly started to evolve. Um, but even still, it was usually something that was associated with suffering. It wasn't until just recent decades that passion became about living something passionately or living your passion in your life. Um, but still, they talk about how we can see how passion can be associated with suffering because of the suffering it can cause in people's life. So um, there's lots of important messages that were in this book that I thought were worth sharing. One is that a lot of times people think that your passion is something that you discover and it just hits you like a ton of bricks, kind of like love at first sight, and you never want to do anything else but that. 
And some people have that experience, but it's not really how most people experience it. A lot of times your passion is more cultivated or something that you have an interest in, but then when you give it more time and attention, you start to fall in love with it, which I think that analogy is a good one because even in relationships, that's actually a healthier type of love, that you see someone and you like them, you're attracted to them, you're interested in them, and then in spending more time and in connecting with them, you fall in love with them rather than love at first sight, which usually can be very exciting but brief and usually ends in a bad way. Same thing with our passions in life. Usually it's something you're interested in, you do enjoy it, but it's after putting more time into it and, and expanding your interest in that hobby, your time with that hobby, that you fall in love with it and it becomes that passion. And so most of the time that's going to be what most people experience, which I think is good for people to know because when you think it has to be something that it's love at first sight, then you try different things and you see, oh, nothing, they might feel enjoyable. I might like some of these things. I'm interested in them, but none of them give me that feeling. So it must not be my passion. Um, but that's not the case. And again, similar to love, you go on dates. You shouldn't think that that first date, you're going to fall head over heels. If anything, I won't get into it today, but sometimes when you fall head over heels in love with someone at first sight, it's because they're exactly the wrong kind of person for you and they're triggering things from your past. So it's not a good thing. Um, but when it comes to finding your passion in life, you should have that similar mindset. See what you're interested in. They talk about uh, find an interest or find things you're interested in and put more time in them and see uh, what is exactly your passion or what can you become more passionate about. Um, they also talk about how um, people, when they have passions that go wrong, when it goes awry, a lot of times it's because their passion becomes more about external results than coming from an intrinsic motivation. So if you're an athlete and it's about you have to get the gold medal or win or get some type of result, or if you're in a business and you have to make money or get that promotion and it's all from the external, this usually leads to people being more likely to burn out, but also more likely to do unethical things. And they share stories of athletes like Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez who used steroids. Um, they talk about the Enron company uh, who used fraudulent uh, bookkeeping, but eventually became one of the biggest uh, you know, scandals or biggest uh, corporate uh, issues or bankruptcies in history, but that when we're incentivized and motivated from the external only or mostly, we end up going down a bad path. And they acknowledge it, of course, if you're an athlete and you get a gold medal, you're going to be happy. You're going to be excited. It's going to feel good. But that shouldn't be the main source of your interest and your excitement. Or if you're going for followers and fame, if you're pursuing some kind of career that could have that, if that's your reason for going, that's the problem. And I've talked about this before, that I imagine two singers who both want to become successful, but one wants to become successful because they want money and fame and followers and attention from people, and the other one wants to share a gift of music with people. And I think that second person is much more likely to feel happy and fulfilled no matter what happens, whether they're successful or not. And the first person, unfortunately, if they're not successful, is going to feel miserable. But also, even if they are successful, will likely feel good for some time, but won't feel very good for long. So that motivation coming from within is very important. And so they talk about how people who have a healthy passion, which they call a harmonious passion, they tend to have this feeling that they enjoy the process of what they're doing. 
they enjoy, let's say, swimming. Talks about, uh, I think her name is Katie Ledecky, and how she practices and tries hard. And even if she wins, she tries hard the next day and practices for the day after. Or if she loses, it's not just about winning or losing. They care about that, but the focus is more on the process than just on those external results. And even one of them shares that they have a 24-hour rule that they use in coaching athletes, where it's whether you win or lose, 24 hours later, you you get back into training. So if you win, you can celebrate for a day. And if you lose, you can be down for a day, but then you get back uh, on the saddle and get back to work within a day. And I think that makes sense to not get too consumed and fixated on the external rewards of life or whatever it is that you're doing. Because if you really enjoy something from within, it's more about the process than just the results. And also that doesn't mean that you don't care about the results, but that you care about it in the way that you know it's because you've prepared and you tried your best. And we can all imagine that feeling of going to whatever it is. If you're an athlete, let's say um, some kind of competition, but even as a student going into a test, and if you knew you studied your hardest and you prepared all you could, you feel good going into it that you've done, done all the preparation you can. So people who have a passion definitely put their time into preparation, but they're less attached to the results that they get. And this allows them to not be so consumed by the ups and downs that are inevitably going to come with any career or anything that you do and more focused on the internal process of what is going on. Now, they talk about living an, the benefits of living an unbalanced life. And this is another cliche that they address, that we always talk about balance. Uh, how do you live a balanced life? Work, family, uh, work-life balance or balancing your family life and your work life. And they mention that sometimes to pursue a passion, you might have to be unbalanced, even if it is just for some amount of time. Um, and I think they talk about how it's not black and white, obviously, uh, but it's something that we have to be aware of that sometimes you might have to be more unbalanced for some time period, let's say, but hopefully balanced overall in your life. So let's say someone is training for the Olympics, they might be unbalanced for some time, some years or some parts of the year, but hopefully overall they look at their whole life. And this is where they talk about the importance of self-awareness. To be aware of whatever it is you're doing, what is it that you're sacrificing? Because if you're going to practice eight hours a day at something, you're going to have to sacrifice other things in order to do that. But that it isn't necessarily wrong to have that much practice that you're or time devoted to practice, but that you're aware of what it is you're sacrificing and you feel okay with it. And you have to be the one that feels okay with it. No one else can tell you this is the right or wrong life. You have to feel what is right for you and live that life. But making sure you have that self-awareness so you're less likely to end up burnt out or look back and have a midlife crisis or feel unhappy about the ways that you have lived your life. And so I thought that was an important point. And uh, doing things like meditation is actually something they mentioned in their book. But also, interestingly, when we talk about self-awareness, it seems like you want to be very close to yourself, which is true. But one of the activities they recommend is what you can call self-distancing, which means, for example, let's say you're in a situation and you're trying to figure out what to do. Imagine it's your friend. What advice would you give that friend in that same situation? Or imagine you're seeing a movie of the life of your life at that moment. How would you react? Or write about the story that's happening to you, but in the third person rather than about yourself and seeing what you feel when you go back and read that story. So sometimes as much as we think about meditation and mindfulness and being more self-aware as being more connected to yourself, which is true, it also at times involves being able to step away from yourself or observe yourself 
and even in psychology, sometimes we'll talk about the observing self. So you see what you're going through, but you can take a step back and almost as if you're looking from above, look at the situation. And with that distance, a lot of times you can make a better decision. Now, they talked about living an unbalanced life and how sometimes that's going to happen. And they talked about um, Gandhi and also Alexander Hamilton. There was one part that I almost found funny in talking about unbalanced life and how you don't have time for everything. But when they talked about Alexander Hamilton, who is a great figure in American history, to be honest, I know a little bit about him. And most of that comes from what I saw in the musical Hamilton, which really was very good. But nonetheless, in talking about him and in this concept of unbalanced lives, they talked about how he had an extramarital affair and somehow how that was part of what he did or needed to do in living an unbalanced life. They didn't say need. Um, but what I found funny about that is that they were saying how there really isn't enough, enough, there isn't enough time to do everything. But then he had an extramarital affair, and that was actually the term they used. And it's extra, meaning that takes extra time, where it's extra involvement. But if you don't have enough time, I don't understand how having an affair is actually going to fit into your life better than not having that affair. Now, maybe the point was to say that sometimes people who have made huge impacts in history did not live such a great life within their own family. And he talked about how Gandhi uh, disowned his own son, I guess, at some point. I didn't know too much about that. Uh, so maybe that was the point they were making, but I don't see how having affairs is something that fits into your life if you don't have enough time to do everything you want to do. Uh, but again, I think their point was more about the unbalanced part, how you might be more focused on this career side or something you're doing rather than your family um, or other aspects of life. And I think this itself is an issue that can be up for debate that, yes, we remember people in history for some impacts they had, and that is wonderful. But is that more important than being a father or mother or as other aspects in their own lives that they could have taken care of? I don't think it's black and white to say that that is the right way to be, but it's something um, we can all think about and see how, what's the life we want to live. And that goes back to that concept of self-awareness, to making sure you live the life you want to live, a life you're going to feel good about. And I, I talk about this when it comes to the context of happiness. And sometimes we think happiness feels means feeling good in the moment. But to me, what's more important is not to live a happy life, but to, to live a fulfilling life and one that you feel content with. When you reflect on your day, your week, your month, your year, your life, you feel good about it. You feel good about what you've done, what you've accomplished, the ways you've met the responsibilities and the roles in your life. And you feel good about that more than just feeling good, as in feeling joy or happiness in the moment. The book also talks about how you can transition out of your passion, which is something that, for example, athletes deal with. To be an elite athlete, you usually can only do it for a pretty short amount of your life, and then you're going to start to lose the ability to be very successful. And a lot of athletes have a hard time with that. But this happens for people in other um, types of careers as well, when they want to retire, or if they're not having the same success as before. But they go over some ways that you can try to uh, overcome the potential of becoming very depressed or turning to drugs, uh, which many people do after, let's say, their athletic career ends, um, by recognizing that you can find passion in something else, or you can use what you've learned in that passion that you had for that sport, let's say, in another area of life. Um, and the aspect of identity also comes up. If you see yourself just as a runner, just as a swimmer, just as an uh, investor, then when you lose that, it can feel like you're losing everything. But if you have a more 
balanced sense of yourself or your identity involves more facets, that can uh, definitely change that experience as well. So I think the book does give a lot of practical advice about looking for your passion. What does that mean? And the very important difference between having an obsessive passion, which is usually going to lead to unhealthy behaviors and burnout down the line, versus having harmonious passion, which is more likely to be cultivated into something positive and something that you'll feel good about in the long term. And also mentioning how even when you find your passion, it doesn't mean you enjoy every moment of it. I think that's an important thing. Sometimes people think, well, if I find my passion, every moment should be fun and enjoyable and good. But that's not necessarily the case. No matter what you do, no matter what job you have or career, there's going to be parts of it that you don't like. And that's part of the process. But again, if you're more coming from a place of intrinsic motivation where you feel good about what you're doing, you're trusting the process, you realize that failures are not something long-term. It's a failure in the moment, but that's going to help you grow. And they use actually a very good analogy of muscles where the muscle goes until failure and that actually makes it stronger. And the same thing could be said of our, us and anything we're pursuing that the failures actually help you grow. But when you come from that mindset, you can recognize that the passion can be a wonderful part of your life. And as they say, you can try to make sure it's a gift in your life and not a curse. So that was The Passion Paradox by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. And again, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is How to Deal with Anger, a five-step CBT-based plan for managing anger and overcoming frustration by Isabel Clark. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you might have noticed I was gone last week. Uh, and I wanted to talk a bit about my trip, not just to tell you about the trip itself, but more about something I experienced that I wanted to share. So I was gone last week because I went to Barcelona with my brother Parham. And it was kind of like a birthday type trip, but really something I'd want to, wanted to do for some time. And uh, I love sports. Anyone who's listened to the show, you'll hear me talk about sports from time to time. And I've been wanting to go to a soccer game or match at uh, in Barcelona for several years, maybe seven, eight years, ever since I really got into uh, watching Lionel Messi play. And I wanted to watch him play live it was something I wanted to experience. But I'd tell myself, oh, yeah, I'm going to go someday. So I'd watch a lot of the games and then I'd think about going as much as even look into it a little bit. But then I'd always stop short of getting close to buying the ticket even to go. Um, and then I'd say, yeah, next fall or next spring or maybe another time or some other time. And this kept happening year after year for several years. And even my brother Parham um, was teaching a course at a university there in Barcelona. And he did this three different times where he would go for, I think, about three weeks and he would be there, had a place to stay, and would have been great times for me to go. But each time, somehow I came up with an excuse not to go or some reason why it wasn't a good time or I would go later or, you know what, there'll be another time to go. And so this continued on until recently, just maybe a couple months ago, I thought about it a little bit more and said, I just, I just have to go. I have to just make it happen. I can keep saying next season, next month, next year. There will always be next. I have to just make it happen. And so I talked with him a little bit and um, we decided to go. And I said, let's just make it happen. And we didn't have the game tickets yet, but 
we bought the plane tickets. And so we got the plane tickets and he arranged for a place to stay. And then he contacted some people he knew there and then um, was able to arrange for getting the tickets. And he got the tickets for me. And the game was the day after my birthday. A very big game. People who follow soccer will know the UEFA Champions League quarterfinals. And it was Barcelona versus Manchester United. Manchester United is one of the most famous soccer teams in the world. Um, and it was an incredible night and we posted something or he posted something online. It's almost embarrassing when you see how, um, excited I was and how into it I was, but I actually, uh, enjoy watching it because I see, I really felt like a kid when I was there. We just walked into the stadium and walked to our seats and really for several minutes I was in awe and I had my hand on my face and just looking around and couldn't believe I was actually there. I had dreamed of that or imagined that moment or being there so many times and finally uh, it had come true and it really was even better than I could have imagined. Sometimes you're afraid of building up something too much because it won't meet that expectation but I was incredibly excited and it still exceeded all those expectations of how good it would be and uh, the game itself was amazing and I had gone, as I mentioned, because I wanted to watch Messi play live and I didn't want to be greedy, but I was hoping he would score even one goal would be amazing, or at least if they won first and then if he scored one, I would have been so happy, but he scored two goals in the span of four minutes and I was yelling and screaming and just going crazy and having a great time and my brother... Um, thankfully captured a lot of it on pictures and videos. And I told him before, I said, if you could please do me this favor, because I want to really experience it. I want to be there and take it all in. I don't want to take lots of pictures or videos, but of course I'd love to have some memories of it and especially to see myself. So could you just take as many pictures and videos as you can to get the experience? And he definitely did more than I expected and took lots of pictures, videos, even sometimes would get behind me. Uh, to capture the moment and see me in the background, which some of them were even funny when you see me trying to communicate with Messi, even though he really can't uh, hear or see me. But um, yeah, it, it was just incredible. And I had such a good time. And every day since then, I've thought about the experience several times and just been so grateful for it and still can't believe it was real. And I'm so happy I did it, but it reminds me of how important it is for us to have experiences and to give ourselves these experiences. And even research shows we know that money can't buy happiness, but they do say that if you want to get the best out of your money or the best bang for your buck, so to speak, you should use your money towards experiences rather than things. Because when we get things, we might be excited for a while, but that wanes. You get a new purse, new shoes, new car, new whatever it is. You're excited for a little while, but due to the hedonic treadmill or hedonic adaptation, we kind of like get over it. It's not that exciting anymore. But experiences on the other hand, like I experienced myself with going to the Camp Nou and seeing this game, they're something we carry with us. Every day I've thought about it with a smile and I've even gone back because I taped the game. So when I came home, I still haven't got the chance to watch the whole game, but I went back and watched the highlights and the goals. And I watched Messi's first goal maybe 20 times already because it's so exciting to hear the crowd roar and see the whole moment. And it's something that every day I'm still enjoying and reflect on and something I got to share with my brother and have this incredible experience. And it's just wonderful. And it felt so good. But also I'm reminded of how I kept delaying giving myself this experience 
for really excuses that I would make up about maybe I shouldn't take the time off of work, which is also something else that at times I can uh, not give to myself, or I can go later. And that's something that's a big human excuse that we have for a lot of things that we put it off for another day. I can do it tomorrow. I can start tomorrow, uh, but we don't do it today, whether it's something we need to do to be productive or to give ourselves an experience. Um, but I recognize how much I put this off and kept delaying this. And it's something that I could have given to myself a while ago. I'm very grateful of how it turned out, but I realized I was not giving myself that experience. And so I wanted to talk about it today to really encourage everyone out there to give themselves those types of experiences. Now, this was more costly than a lot of the experiences um, people might experience. I'm not saying you have to fly to some other country and have some amazing uh, experience like I had the way it was, but you can have amazing experiences anywhere. Depends on what it is for you. But really to look at those things that would be a meaningful experience for you, something you've wanted to do. Sometimes people will talk about their bucket list of things they want to do before they die. And don't just think about it as someday or one day or another day or some other year I'll go and see if you can give that experience to yourself now. And especially to share them with loved ones can make it even more valuable. As I got to share this with my brother, it'll be an experience I'll never forget and something we'll always be able to talk about and share with one another. So that's why I wanted to talk about my experience because I realized we all too often don't give ourselves these opportunities to experience something like this. And again, I was it was really one of the best nights of my life. The experience was something I couldn't imagine being as good as it was. It felt amazing. I might post some of the videos online so you can see um, the way I was reacting and how into it I was and the passion I had. I know I just talked about a book about passion, but I really was so passionate about what I was experiencing. Um, and like I said, had that childlike feeling of just being in awe and wonder and enjoyment. Uh, and it, it was incredible. Oh, and I should mention Parsa Pekar, who will be joining me after the break. Um, very kindly before I left, he got me for my birthday a Barcelona jersey, which is what I was wearing at the game. So that was kind of cool. Also connection with him. Um, but I was wearing the jersey he got me at the game which was really nice. But um, just that experience, again, was something that I could never recreate in any other way. And as I mentioned before about buying things, no thing I could have would give me anything close to the kind of joy that I had and give me the memories that I had with that experience. So yes, buying yourself things is great. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but also we want to make sure we invest in experiences for ourselves and also for our loved ones, for your kids, for your partner. When you think about giving them a gift, of course, you can get them a thing that they might like, but even better if you can give them an experience that you know that they would enjoy or something they've always wanted to do, that will be much more meaningful than anything you can give them. But yes, give them to others, but also give them to yourself. Give yourself the experiences you've been wanting to give to yourself. And don't just keep thinking as I did, that you'll do it next month or next year or some other time. For a lot of things like this, there isn't some magical time that it's going to work. You have to make it happen. And I'm so happy I did. And I'm so grateful to my brother Parham who arranged for the tickets and was there with me and uh, made the experience much more meaningful and worthwhile. So I hope everyone will give themselves those types of experiences. Uh, again, I'll post some of those pictures and videos soon so you can see me going crazy and enjoying the whole thing. I probably have to keep some of them 
offline because they're a little bit embarrassing because of how crazy I was going, but I uh, just know that I had the time of my life and was really enjoying that, and I hope people will get to experience that same feeling that I had as well. All right, so we're at our next commercial break, but after the break, I will be joined by Parsa Pekar, who, uh, as I mentioned before, will be... Uh, he's helped create an event that's happening this Saturday in the Los Angeles area called the Hidden Treasure Exhibition, which is this Saturday, April 27th, um, starting at 7 p.m. at the Loose Art Gallery at 8373 Melrose Avenue. I'll post this information on my social media, but it'll be showcasing artwork, poems, and inspirational writings from inmates at the Twin Tower Correctional Facilities. And I've had the opportunity to go with him now a few times to visit some of the inmates there. And uh, I will be on the panel that night as well on Saturday. So um, if you're in the area, come by. We'll talk more about that event and how you can attend as well. So after the break, I'll be joined by Parsa. Uh, let's go into our commercial break now. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. As I mentioned before the break, I'm now joined by Parsa Pekar, who is an entrepreneur who has been doing volunteer work at the Twin Tower Correctional Facility for two years. And he's here today to discuss the upcoming event I was talking about, the Hidden Treasure Exhibition, where artwork, poems, and inspirational writings of the inmates will be displayed. And that's this Saturday, April 27th, starting at 7 p.m. at the Luz Art Gallery on Melrose. As I mentioned before, I'll post the information so you can get the address uh, on my social media later. But Parsa John, thank you for joining me today. Of course, Fahajan. Thanks. Uh, I say hi to everyone and to you, and thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And as I've mentioned before, Parsa, um, he's been doing work for over two years with the inmates uh, at the Twin Towers facility. And through him, I've had the opportunity now to go several times to visit the inmates there and, and make friendships uh, with them, which has been a great experience for me that I'm very grateful for. Um, but also it's been so nice that he has helped to organize this event to display some of the artwork, poems, inspirational writings that these inmates have created, but also that I know you've been a part of encouraging them. That's mm -hmm. something you've done is helped encourage uh, art as a way for them to express themselves. And maybe you can tell the listeners a bit about what got you into this process to begin with or, and, and what it's been like. And I'll share some of my own experiences. And again, we definitely want to mention the, the gallery and the exhibition this Saturday. But thought it would be good first to just tell people about your own experience. I think the work you do is incredible. Thank you, Fajan. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's been such a great journey and life experience for myself. Mm -hmm. I always say to everyone, they need to experience it at least once. I think you did, and it's mm -hmm. such a uh, life-changing experience because, you know, our, first of all, we have some ideas about how the jail looks like and all mm -hmm. of that, but mm -hmm. when, you are, when you are in there, it's, it's totally different yeah. when you see how the inmates live their life. And uh, it becomes really, you become very much more grateful when you come out of there and you mm -hmm. start to appreciate your freedom and, you know, the way you see your own families and friends and everything much more. When I first went there as a volunteer from a Beverly Hills uh, Persian church, it was such a, um, I met the first person I met, he was uh, 19 years old mm. and uh, he just had a, a drunk driving experience 
and he had an accident where the the, the guy he he uh, he had an accident with died. Mm. So he was um, at that time he still hasn't his his case was not settled yet, but he was facing between 14 to 16 years, something like that. Mm. And um, you know that was a really deep experience for me because you know kind of I picture myself in his place, and you know uh, just for one bad choice, and uh, how you know life can be changed suddenly mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden he needs to you know kind of spend his most of the time inside of the jail where he's young and you know he should be in school or do something by his own so that really got me to thinking and i kept going i wanted to go more and i saw where um i started to ask them to do some readings or give them some assignments to do and i realized how much that really gives their life purpose and mm -hmm. how important that is for them to have a purpose because yeah. um once they feel to start significance and important, they start to behave much, uh, much better. And, and you see the results in their life, in the way they, they talk, in the way they look. You know, lots of things can change when, mm -hmm. when they start to, to really find a purpose and uh, being able to feel, you know, that they're, they're being encouraged. Yeah, I think, you know, that uh, one of the most important things for anyone is to have a feeling of purpose and meaning in their lives. And lots of people who are outside of jail can lose that feeling of purpose or never have that feeling. But especially for someone who is in jail, I think for a lot of them, it can make sense that it feels like their life can lack meaning or purpose or it's taken away from them. But I think what's so important about the work you've done is I think you've helped a lot of inmates find purpose and meaning in their life, even if they are in jail. Is there any way they can live a meaningful life? Can they find some kind of purpose? And my own experience in coming with you has been a very inspirational one as I've seen some of the people that I've met there, uh, the incredibly inspirational stories they have of how they want to make a positive difference in the world, even if they are behind bars, even if they are in jail, that they have found a purpose or meaning in their life, which can be the most important thing to help us keep going. And I know you've even experienced um, talking with people or interacting with people who are suicidal mm. uh, in, in one of your, I think, first times you went or first times you met one of the inmates that he was suicidal. And by giving him purpose and meaning, it could take away that feeling because they then have a, a feeling like they have a reason to live, something that gives their life meaning. And I think that's been very important about the work I know you've done is that helping them find their own meaning in their life and that they can be significant, as you mentioned, or have some kind of contribution to the world, even if they are in jail. And I think that's very important. Exactly. I, you know, my deep belief in life is every human is a treasure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at some moment in our life, we need someone or something, a re revelation, which kind of, you know, reveal that to us. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't matter what our situation is. We still carry that potential inside of us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was just being a tool. You know, I, I, I don't want to really take credit because these are the gifts I have received from God. And it's not really from me. But um, I always love to encourage people. I love to inspire people. And I think they can, once people are inspired, they do much better in their life. They, mm -hmm. they can start. As, as you discussed, Farijan, they, they start to become much more happier. They start to feel significance. And every human being in, in every area, you know, in doesn't matter where they are, they want to feel significant mm -hmm. and important and mm -hmm. great. And that's natural. That's, mm -hmm. that's our human tendency, and that's totally fine. So um, these inmates are, are no, you know, no ex expect, uh, exception, and they, um, 
you know, some of the things I've seen from them, it's so, so amazing. I mean, you mm -hmm. look at some of their arts and some of their writings. And especially when you, talk, when you ask them about freedom, because mm -hmm. they're in jail, yeah. their understanding of freedom is very deep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they give you answers which, you know, really make you think. And you learn a lot yourself. <laughs> like, yeah. as I said, I learned a lot from them. I sometimes even ask them questions when I need guidance mm -hmm. and they've been ab able to help me in some yeah. some instance. So, Well, I believe that because I've gotten that same inspiration from them. And, you know, yeah, you talked about freedom and how it's we tend to think of freedom as this physical thing of mm. if you're in jail, you don't have freedom. If you're outside of jail, you have freedom or in different types of rights, which are very important, of course. But right. then also we realize that the biggest prison or the jail we can be in is the prison within ourselves with our own brain and our mind and how we can create limitations for ourselves um, that really we think are very real but it's just in our imagination or just we've created it because I know even uh, I think Adrian is working on a book mm. where he's really and I, and I heard him saying that I was like you know I've, I've thought about writing a book before but I always thought I can't or I have to wait or something but here's someone who is in jail when you think there's no opportunity. He doesn't see that as a limitation. He says, I want to write a book, and he's working on that. And so the limitations I've created for myself are just my own making. Mm. They're not a real thing. And so I think yeah, it could be very inspirational to see how they see freedom in a very different way, a deeper level of it, that we always can have things on the outside that happen, but within ourselves, we're always free to choose how to think or how to live our lives. And that's up to us. No one can take that away from us. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. I can see how they can actually be very motivational and inspirational and uh, they can, they teach us so much. And I've had that experience myself as well of learning from them and how they've decided to live their lives based on the circumstances they are now in. So true. You know, I always say the person who's not free from inside makes cage everywhere yeah, he or she yeah. goes. Mm -hmm. He makes cage for himself and other people. Mm -hmm. That, you know, as as we said, uh, you know, we work, last time we talked about that book, The Bird yes. from the Kingdom of Heaven. And that's a story which the bird really was caged in her own mind. Mm -hmm. And she didn't even know it until later right. on when she realized it was all an illusion. Yeah, that was the name of the book, The Bird from the Kingdom the, of Heaven. Yes. And I, yeah, in, in December, uh, Parsa was on my show and he talked about that book, um, which the writings, I think most of it, you had done a lot of the writing, but the artwork in the book was from uh, different inmates in the jail or the cover and the inside exactly. artwork from that. And yeah, it was this concept again of this prison of self or that we create these limitations. And I've seen it in so many ways, um, even in relationships. Sometimes people feel stuck in the relationship, but they realize they have a choice if they want to leave the relationship or to change the relationship. You know, it, things can also evolve within the same relationship, but we feel very stuck a lot of times and it can take some perspective or some stepping back to realize, wait, this is in my own imagination that I am stuck. I'm not actually in a prison or in a jail. It's a mental way I've created this prison for myself. And I, I, sometimes I work with people and they say, you feel very stuck, but the key to your jail is in your hand or the door is actually open. You can walk out anytime, but for some reason you feel stuck because of how you're thinking about the situation. And it can be very eye-opening for people to realize that. And I think, as you mentioned, when you experience these people who really have taken their physical freedom has been taken away from them, um, you see that that mental freedom is always there. And that's something that they experience. And I think through the art, they also get to express that as well. Exactly. Art's been a very powerful tool for them mm -hmm. to really express themselves and uh, really being able to... Um, you know, also understand what their potential and talents are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, as you said, I remember one of the inmates, his name was Damien, which which was, you know, having a suicide thoughts. When 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 I started seeing him more often and I realized he was a very talented, you know, uh, artist, mm -hmm. he started to painting and he started to sell them to to different inmates mm -hmm. in the pod. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was so talented and that kind of gave him him a meaning for his life and a purpose where he understood that he's important, that he can contribute even if he's in, in jail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he even sang for me once, you know, sang mm -hmm. a song. He writes music. Um, I mean, as I said, every human is like a treasure. So every human has something to really to give to the world. And yeah. That's, that's, what I, that's what I've been, you know, in jail also. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you that with that mindset that I would hope we all can have. It's to see you know, the title of the exhibition, The Saturday's Hidden Treasure, but that every human being is a treasure to be um, discovered and has to be brought out. But sometimes we all need help in, mm. in bringing that out because we might not see it ourselves or we might not uh, think anyone wants to see it. And also I think that word hidden is very important, especially when we're dealing with the inmates because there's lots of populations that get forgotten or get hidden in society. For mm. me, another meaningful one is the homeless population people experiencing homelessness but also people in jail people in prisons which unfortunately in the united states is something like several I don't know, three million people um but there are people that are very much forgotten and hidden and people often assume that those people it's like a them mm. are these bad people or they're criminals or they're whatever it might be and yes maybe they've done something made a bad decision which it, we shouldn't ignore either but it doesn't mean we should only define them as that bad decision and not see that they might have something also that they can contribute to the world. And I think that's so important in what I saw in you before I even went uh, for the first time with you to the Twin Towers is the way you talked about the people you met there and not just as inmates, even though that might be the label we can give to them, but as friends you had created, you had friendships with these people and the way you described and what I even saw the first time I went with you was like you were going to visit your friends, mm. not like you were doing something different and it was a different environment, but there was still that feeling of friendship that I felt between you and the people we were meeting with that was very inspirational for me as well. And I really valued that in you, that that mindset you had was that every person deserves to be loved. Every person deserves to be treasured or has a treasure to share with the world. And your, I feel like your passion is to help people find that and bring that out. Certainly. That's, that's really, I believe, my purpose and my passion is. And I, as I said, I really love to see people's success, where, where they are in their life. And as you said, Faijan, you know, people sometimes ask me, why, why do you go you know, every week or why do you mm -hmm, go to jail mm -hmm. and, you know, th these people have made bad choices and all that. And, you know, I can understand some part of it, but at the same time, uh, the, the, you know, the thing I have is, first of all, okay, now what can we do now? Mm -hmm. Let's say they made that mistake or whatever. We can't just throw them away or just, mm -hmm. you know, put them aside. And also what, what can they contribute? You know, they're going to be back into society. And if we want them to be healthy and contribute to our, to our world and society, mm -hmm. they need to be doing something good, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what really this, this art and, you know, one, once they really start finding a meaning for their life, that can help them to stay away from jail, stay away from drugs or alcohol or whatever that mm -hmm. got them to that place. So, um, this art show is really about showing the other side of the jail and inmates that mm -hmm. you know they are they have something to contribute to they they have so much talents they're they are there to really um they're not 
you know, we, we, it's not the label we put on them. Right. They are much more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they've I, been very... Sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think that's that's one beautiful what you said. I think it's so easy for us where we prefer to make things very simple, like good person, bad mm. person, you know, inmate or felon. It's like only that, where it's like, and I think that's the part that can be even challenging for people to see is that these inmates that they maybe assume in some negative way could then produce this beautiful art that might even make them feel something beautiful or good within themselves. And that conflict, I think, is actually good for people to realize, hey, you know, you maybe thought you know what inmates are or who they are and label them as one thing, but they're much more complex than that. Just like every one of us has good parts, bad parts, has made good decisions, bad decisions, um, has done things they probably regret or maybe wish they didn't do, but also done wonderful things and has even more to contribute. And I, I totally agree with you that, yes, let's say they've made a bad decision, that maybe punishment makes sense or it's not just punishment, something makes sense as far as consequences. But what do we do now as a society? Do we want to just punish them and discard them and make them feel worthless and then what do we expect those people to do when they come out of jail? Which is unfortunately why we see so much recidivism where people then recommit and go exactly. back to jail because they've been disregarded by society. So why not make it a win-win, in my opinion, and, and allow these people to have some way of contributing, even while they're still in jail, but then also when they come back. And I think that only happens when we see them as whole people who maybe made a mistake, made a bad decision, but they're still people. They're not exactly. now animals or something worse which is sometimes what people do in treating criminals mm. thinking that they're somehow less than human they're human beings that made a bad decision or did something and also there are a lot of times human beings who are living in incredibly bad situations and circumstances mm. that significantly contributed to whatever crime they did commit doesn't mean it's okay but it does mean that we can understand it in a different light rather than thinking they're somehow worse than us and that's why i think their art uh it is so important for people to see, to recognize that these are human beings just like all of us. And you might assume a lot of things about someone, but as we usually realize when we make assumptions, they turn out to be wrong and just something in our own uh, imagination. Now, we have to go to a commercial break, but after the break, we'll talk a little bit more. I'm joined today by Parsa Pekar, and we're talking about the Hidden ex- hidden Treasures exhibition that's happening this Saturday, where I hope you will be joining us. We'll talk a bit more about what's going to be going on that night and how you can also attend and maybe some of the artwork or writings that you might hear there as well. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined today with Parsa Pekar, who is uh, helping to organize the Hidden Treasure Exhibition, which is this Saturday, April 27th from 7 to 9.30 p.m. at the Loose Art Gallery on Melrose Avenue, um, where they'll be showcasing artwork, poems, and inspirational writings from inmates at the Twin Tower Correctional Facilities. And we will talk even more about the event and how you can attend if you are in the L.A. area. Hope to see you there this Saturday. But, uh, Parsa, I wanted to talk about something you've recently started doing uh, with the help of, I believe, a therapist um, at the jail, which is doing art therapy with some of the inmates. And also you're trying to create an organization called a pencil to the, the pencil of freedom, the pencil for freedom, the pencil yes. for freedom, um, which is going to be using art therapy, which I think is wonderful. Art therapy itself is a, a wonderful thing that people sometimes associate just with children because we think they do drawings and things in therapy, which is very common. But art therapy is great for people of all ages because a lot of times through art, we can express 
our feelings and our emotions in a way that can be tough to verbalize. And it could be music, it can be drawings, it can be any type of thing, whatever resonates for that person. But it can be very therapeutic and very healing oftentimes for people to express their emotions, especially express a lot of times their pain through mm -hmm. art in a way that can be very um, important. And I know you've done a few sessions of something like art therapy. Maybe you could talk a bit about uh, what's going on there. Definitely. So the name is inspired uh, from my good friend and mentor, uh, Hamid. Mm -hmm. And he said he knew a woman in Iran, which was jailed because of her painting. You know, mm. they just put, and she was there for two years. And, you know, he asked her, how was your experience like when you were in jail? And she said, which one, with pencil or without pencil? Mm. She said, the first year I spent without pencil, it was such a hard experience. Mm. But the second year with pencil, it was a different experience. I drew lots of things. I started to work on lots of things. So I realized a pencil can be a freedom in mm -hmm, itself. Mm -hmm. And that's what the name is coming from. But yeah, we, I started developing this program, which is about 16 weeks, which every week has different topics. So yesterday we talked about potential. Last week we talked about freedom. Mm -hmm. So every week has a different subject. And uh, there are like three questions on each subject, which for example is, what, what does freedom mean to you? Mm -hmm or draw or write a scenario which describes freedom the best. And some of the answers you get, like last week, which we discussed freedom, I asked, I asked them, and one of the guy, I saw he drew like a really well-man dress mm -hmm. in like a, you know, in an open space. And I asked, uh, what is that? He said, is a, is a man dressed well in an open space, in the park, you know, and all that. So how, does, how is that a freedom? He said, well, he's free, he's well-dressed, mm -hmm. and, you know, he, there's no limitation where he can go. Mm. And it was really, you know, in, in, I was inspired by his answer. So this organization is kind of a combination of uh, psychologists and artists mm -hmm. where they can kind of come together. And I've discussed with some people. I know you might be interested, Faizan, to yeah. be part of it. Mm -hmm. But there are some artists, friends I have, I've talked to them, and they're very interested. So we kind of teach them through art but also critical thinking so we make them think okay what does that mean mm -hmm. and by that i believe they can they can really find their purpose they can find their potential their concept of different words can be changed mm -hmm. and you know it's something they have like whatever i tell them to draw or write they'll keep it so they can look at it they can read it mm -hmm. and that can change their mind that's great. so yeah that's something i've been doing for two weeks now and uh, it's been going really well. And there's a, a psych psychologist there who helps me out, and it's been great. That's that's wonderful. I think, yeah, there's a lot of potential there because I think art therapy, as I mentioned, can be very healing and therapeutic for for people of all ages. I think especially with the pain that a lot of them have experienced, a lot of times even before going to jail, but then also in jail, um, expressing that through art not only can be healing and therapeutic for them, but they can probably produce some very beautiful art because a lot of amazing art has been inspired by pain or by very intense emotions that people have gone through. So I think it could be a win-win where they hopefully will get a lot of healing from it, but might also produce some wonderful art that uh, others can enjoy as we're going to enjoy also uh, this Saturday as well. So um, I'm sure you'll keep me posted and I would like to be involved with that project, but um, maybe later on you'll come back and talk more about how things are going as you continue to develop that program. But I think it definitely has a lot of potential. Um, and speaking of a lot of potential, the, our friends and our inmates, the inmates that we've gotten to know and you've created these strong relationships with, they've shown a lot of potential. And even 
Uh, you mentioned to me during the break that some of them have some projects that they're working on, like even a children's book. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe you could talk a bit about some of the things they are working on. Exactly. So once one of the inmates who I see kind of regularly, uh, his name is Adrian. Mm-hmm. I he said, I want to show you something. I said, okay. And he's, he told me, my sister just had a baby. Mm. And he said, physically, I cannot be there. So I wrote a children's book. Oh. And uh, he showed it to me. It was such a nice book. And, you know, he showed me all the pages. He was writing with, with uh, paintings. And he said, you know, can you, can you help me to publish it? Because, you know, I want to be there for her. Mm. And this book can be a way for me to kind of, you know, be, be with her. Mm-hmm. And that was really interesting to me. He also did, you know, he... He was working on a book, if you remember, Farajan, yeah. he, uh, where he was ter- like he wrote inspirational quotes right. and you yeah. know, like discuss what that means. And some of his quotes was like amazing. Yeah. I actually, I, I well, I mean, and Adrian's one of the people I've gotten to meet uh, the three times I've went with you. And he, uh, yeah, he, I, I follow him on Twitter, and he has some of that I think helps him to post the things, uh, his quotes. But he posts the quotes also on Twitter. But I know he's working on a book. It might become an ebook, but of his inspirational uh, quotes, which I think is great. Yeah. Exactly. So he's uh, one of the guys. And there's another guy, which his story, I think, is fascinating. The, the, you know, he's been there for 17 years in jail and prison. And he was actually on death row for 14 years, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the worst kind of case you can get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But for the last three years, his case was overturned, which is something that doesn't happen. Like, you know, one in a million that mm-hmm. happens and mm-hmm. he's back in jail. And he is also a very good artist. Uh, I brought the painting, as you can see, and I brought one of his writings, which uh, I would like to see if I can share. Absolutely. With, yes, this is from uh, Cregan, right? Yes. Who I've also got the opportunity to um, see. And he's very yeah, he's very inspirational and a great guy. But uh, yeah, this is something you have brought in. That Will this be uh, on display on Saturday as well? Yes, okay. it's going to be on there. So what, what we have for the art show, I... You know, the topics we're going to discuss, the first one, you know, we discussed a little bit today is what is freedom? You know, what is freedom like or what is the meaning of freedom? The second one is the power of art in the life of inmates. And lastly is how the life is in jail. Mm. You know, we're going to discuss about that in our panel. But this writing by him is called Life in Jail, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I also told them what the topic is going to be. So they did it, uh, you know, according to the topic. And he says, Life in jail reveals man to himself. Mm. I am impactful, powerful, a teacher and creator who can change lives with decision and voice. I am powerful enough to create life with a single choice. I teach 24-7, 365, sometimes intentionally, but mostly I exemplify. I am strong. I built it off my weakness. I am compassionate. I am patient with the teachless. I'm forgiving because I love myself. But I seek, but I seek for forgiveness because I'm imperfect and will surely have hurt someone else. I am humble because confidence when young was very low. I'm confident now and the humbleness has allowed me to grow. I'm loving. I learn it from hate. Although hate still has its place, I choose to love. It seems better that way. I'm alive, but I know death is on the way. I'm happy because a lot were left sleeping, and I woke today. Mm. I am. Wow, that that's wonderful. And actually, having the pleasure of meeting Craig, and I can see 
that in him, like when you talk to him, that feeling of he's been through a lot, but that he's chosen love now. Um, and he's working on a lot of projects himself that he, he he's talked to us about, but that that's beautiful. And I think you feel a certain level of pain, but also mm. that hope in the, the writing. And I think it's that you can always find some beauty or hope no matter what the situation or circumstance. And many of the people you get to interact with have been through really horrible things, but they're making the best of it. And I think that's what's so beautiful is that we a lot of times can't choose the circumstances or we especially can't choose even the decisions we've made in the past. We can only choose what we do now, our mindset and what we do going forward. Um, and I hope people will come on Saturday to see and read inspirational works like this, but also the artwork that the inmates uh, have done. And so maybe you could tell people a bit about what to expect if they do come uh, this Saturday to the Hidden Treasure exhibition. Yes, definitely. So on Saturday, uh, this Saturday, April 27th, from 7 to 9.30 p.m., we're going to mm -hmm. have the exhibition, which will start off with live music. We're going to have a live music uh, by Diana and Chris. Uh, there, It's a flute and violin, mm -hmm. which I thought would be go well with the theme of, of our mm -hmm. event. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we're going to have um, like a panel discussions which you know we are pleasure we are uh, we are very pleased to have you Fari John. It's my pleasure thank you for inviting me. Yeah. No, of course. And uh, we're going to have three other uh panelists which they all had some sort of experience with um you know, one of them had an experience visiting the prison and his experience is very you know uh, inspirational too mm -hmm. and he actually wrote a book out of their experiences mm. which is very nice. Uh, the other one, she's been having experience outside of U.S. in different prisons. And that's going to be very interesting. Nora and the other one, Farshad. And the last, the one I'm really excited to meet, I haven't met him yet, but I met him through a friend, uh, Roger Nielsen. He used to be an inmate in Twin Tower, but now he's a motivational speaker, mm. author. And uh, he also wrote a book, uh, which is called Greatness Cannot Be Locked Up. So we will have a discussion on uh, what is freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, also, what is, how can art, what, what, a, what, does, what does art have a role in their lives, mm -hmm. in the inmates' mm -hmm. lives? Mm -hmm. And also, how is life in the jail? I think many people are interested to know. Yeah, yeah. I think that it, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And again, I'm uh, honored to be a part of the panel and to be there and also hear the rest of what, what the speakers have to say. And it's such a small world because Nora, uh, Rahimian, she, her mother is Mitra Alvari, who is a psychologist. And um, I think it was last year at some point I had her book on the show. She wrote a book called Divine Balance. Mm. And she shares an office a few spaces away from mine. And she's there. And then also Hamid has an office in the same building. And he's the one that introduced me to you. But it's, it's, so it's funny how everything is re can be connected that way. But I'm looking forward to meeting Nora and also the rest of the panelists and, and hearing uh, what they have to say and to contribute. And again, I'm very honored. I hope I can contribute something of value that night, but just to be a part of the event, I'm really looking forward to it. And again, that's this Saturday, April 27th from 7 to 9.30 p.m. at the Loose Art Gallery at 8373 Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles. So if you're in the LA area, I hope you'll come in. And um, they don't need tickets. It's an open mm. event. Is that correct? Yes, it's an open event and uh, there's no ticket. It just, you know, and we're going to sell the artwork. So anyone who's Great. interested, they can just, you know, donate something and, mm -hmm. and get the artwork. So that's 
That's wonderful. Yeah. So uh, as he just mentioned, t- there's no tickets, no admission. You can donate if you'd like, but that's totally voluntary. So please show up to Hidden Treasure, ex- treasure Exhibition this Saturday. Um, and I'm joined by Parsa Pekar, who has organized the event and who has done incredible work with the inmates there. And after the break, we'll talk a bit more about that. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined today by Parsa Pekar, who has organized the Hidden Treasure Exhibition this Saturday, April 27th, from 7 to 9.30 p.m. at the Loose Art Gallery, where they'll be showcasing artwork, poems, and inspirational writings from inmates at the Twin Tower Correctional Facility. And as you mentioned before the break, there will also be a panel of speakers who will be talking about different aspects related to artwork for the inmates and also just life for the inmates in jail. And related to that, I thought maybe you could share a bit about your own experience about um, spending time. And you go almost every week for now two years, so you've been able to build some very strong relationships with the inmates. But maybe you could share a bit about just your experience and what it's been like for you personally. Hmm. Uh, Personally, I've learned a lot. It's been, as I said, it's been a life-changing experience for myself. Every time I go and come back, uh, there's something I learned. Mm. And I think the, one of the main thing is to be grateful mm-hmm. for the freedom we have. Because, you know, imagine if, if someone is there, they don't see their family members. Mm. Yeah. They don't see their friends. They barely get a visit from someone. So, and that's like very far away, except us, which are volunteers. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it really made me much more appreciative toward, toward my family members, toward my friends or people overall mm-hmm. and something else i learned is to not just as you said Fari john to not just label people and judge them because once you hear their stories you realize you know it's it's maybe someone else or even yourself if you were in that situation same thing could happen to you mm-hmm. and uh, so when you really start to listen to their stories and what they go through you know many of your own problems and challenges they don't become that, you know, in your mind. They're like, wow, you know, it's not that, that mm-hmm. hard. Of right, yeah. And uh, one more thing I'm, I'm learning every day, I'm trying to learn, is to really be able to love people unconditionally, regardless of their past or their background. Mm-hmm. I think that's the power that really changes people. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the very good leaders who really inspired me is Mother Teresa, and she used to feed like lots of homeless people and she used to have this house in india where she would take in people with all different sicknesses and take care of them and she's she said i've seen so many people who have you know physical hunger but the worst kind of hunger is the one with for love and care Mm. it says when people don't feel when people feel that kind of hunger that's the worst pain i have seen Mm. and it's the same with these inmates you see how much they they want to be cared and loved and how much they need that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, is is being really able to see. I uh, You know, I told Adrian, one of the guys, that you need to always look at the potential. What what things can be or mm-hmm. could be instead of the reality. That's, you know, important to, to keep an eye on what's happening. But much more now, what can you do? Or yeah. what's your potential? Mm. 
and it's i always encourage people if they have the time and have the chance to to visit once <laughs> or you know if they can come to the art show they can see their artwork and see what they they have and one of the main purposes i've also you know the reason we created this exhibition is to show people outside of here if the inmates can do such a great work how much us we can do great right. works yeah. and how much we should do it mm-hmm. so that's that's what that's what the journey has been for me and it's been an amazing journey i've absolutely enjoyed it uh it's it really you know every time as i say go makes me happy to see them and being able to talk to them uh, being able to inspire them and um being you know it's great to see what they can do (laughs) how their life can can be changed yeah i mean i've i've gone to go just a couple of times with you but i could definitely uh, relate to what you're talking about and you know you mentioned that feeling of being loved and and seen and cared for it's really a human need and you mm. shared that story about mother Teresa. we talk we think physical hunger for food but we're social animals we need love we need social connection and unfortunately people of course who are in jail are going to experience a lot of disconnection and, and lose that and i think that's what's so valuable about the work you do is that you're just going there and connecting with them, seeing them, showing them that you're their friend and you, you see them as a human being. And that I think is very valuable for everyone. We all need that, for, but especially people who lose that experience or lose that connection. Um, and you talked about family and being able to see them. And it's kind of funny because just during the break, my brother came to the radio station. He dropped me off a little something, uh, some coffee and something very nice. But, you know, it's very nice to have those kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. You realize how lucky you are to have those and it can make you more grateful for having, uh, you know, that uh, possibility. Um, but also what you mentioned, I think when you see any group that first is just a, a them, an outside mm. group, inmates or homeless people, or maybe it's even a, a race of people that you've never interacted with, usually we see them all as one group or as one thing and we label them and we think we know them. But then once you get to know the people and actually see them, you see each person as an individual, unique human being that like you has similar experiences and isn't just one thing. An experience this reminds me of is mm. now many years ago, gosh, maybe a 12 years ago, I went to Costa Rica for three weeks and volunteered at a school for deaf children. And I knew very little sign language and, you know, I had a hard time interacting, but you see how much you can just communicate even without language. But nonetheless, I remember when I first went there, every day I would look at all the kids and think these are all deaf children. And it was just like one group of just like deaf, oh, that's a deaf child. And that's all I could see. But then once I was going there for a few days, I would be, oh, that's, you know, she's the jokester. She kind of does this. Mm. He is a little bit sensitive. He likes that way. She's like that. He's like that. Their personalities came out and their humanness came out. And they were no longer this group of just deaf children. They were all the same, but their unique personalities and who they were defined them for me, not just the, some label. And so the same thing is true of any group, but even with the inmates that at first you might walk into a jail and think, oh, these are all inmates or these are all criminals or all felons or whatever word you might use. But then when you start to interact with them, as I've had the opportunity to do, you said that they're all unique human beings that have different potentials and different interests and different ways of being. And they lose that just being one group of them. And you realize it's us. We're all human beings and you see them for that. And so that experience has been interesting for me. And I'm very grateful again to you for giving me that experience of going with you. And I'm looking forward to going with you some more and even the process of getting letters from some of them. Mm. 
has been very meaningful to me. And then I got to write them back. And it's funny because you don't really write letters anymore. Mm. That's not a very common thing we do, but it was something very meaningful for me to get that those letters from them and then to get to write them back. And even I realized I put a lot of pressure on myself of what do I say? How mm. do I write it? What do I do? But I realized I just got to write them something to show I'm thinking of them and to connect with them. And I hope you know they enjoyed it, but I hope I was able to give them something. But it's been very interesting for me to get to experience a type of connection or connections that I hadn't had before. Um, and as you mentioned, when you're there, you connect with them, it feels good, but I would be lying if I said when I leave, I don't have this feeling of, wow, I'm so lucky to be outside, to get to have this freedom. And you realize it's something we tend to take for granted, but not everyone has that same type mm -hmm. of freedom. So it's been very meaningful for me, just I think I've gone three times with you and I hope to go many more times, but just those three experiences have been really impactful on me and something that I think affected me. And I agree with you that I think everyone should go at least once. And even mm. we're talking about going to the jails, but I think with all different types of people, exactly. wh whoever we might think is different from us, see what it's really like to experience. And you never will know what's actually like, but at least get a glimpse of what their life is like. Um, I think go to a homeless shelter and see mm. what it's like for people who live there. Go to a hospital, visit people in circumstances different from you just to get a better understanding of the human experience and see that, you know, we're all human beings, but we go through different things and to see that humanness in each person. So true, you know, there shouldn't be any excuses because there's need everywhere. Yeah. And we can't even start with our own family. The person right next to us, start yeah. serving them and start <laughs> loving them for who they are. And as you said, it doesn't have to be specific jail, homeless shelters. As I said, everywhere you go, there's a need. <laughs> People are hungry for being cared for and mm -hmm. being loved for. And, uh, you know, I I'm, I really appreciate you, Farijan, for, first of all, being part of the show and also giving me this opportunity to come to your show and also your caring heart. I understand. Mm -hmm. I, I know how much you care for them and how much you care for people. So I really want to thank you yeah. and also the people who are listening to us. Um, the... Um, and I would like to, if it's possible, Farijan, mm -hmm. to send a message in Farsi sure, to, yeah. to the people. Absolutely. To my understand. I want to thank you for all of you, brothers and sisters, who are listening to us and are in this program. I want to talk about this show. Maybe you can ask us about this show. چرا ما این کارو میکنیم چرا ما یه شوی داریم برای یه زندانی اون که میدونین اشتباه کرده کارایی کرده که شاید از یه از یه قضاوتی حقش باشه ولی ولی و من میفهمم که از کجا میایم ولی سوالی که هست اینه که ما چیکار میتونیم بکنیم این آدم ها یه روزی به جامعه برخوانگش و اگر بهشون رسیدگی نشه اگه چیزی نباشه که اونها رو به زندگی امیدوار کنه به همون راه های گذشتهشون برمیگردن و یک چیز دیگه ای که اینجا هست اینه که متوجه بشیم که همه ماها اشتباه میکنیم در زندگی همه ما من از تجربه شخصی خودم میگم و به این فکر کنیم که اگر ما وقتی که اشتباه میکردیم آدم ها ما رو کنار میذاشتن اون چقدر دردآور بود این این شو برای اینه که نشون بدیم که اونها هم یک چیزی دارن که به, آدم به نشون بدن اونها هم در زندگیاشون امید دارن در زندگیاشون دلیل برای زندگی کردن دارن و 
من دعوت کنم از شما عزیزان که اگر میتونید شنبه 27 اپریل از ساعت 7 تا 9 نیم به ما ملحق بشین و با ما باشین Beautifully said. Thank, that was very wonderful. And uh, there's a reason I don't speak Farsi on my show because I can't speak as beautifully as you just did. But thank you for sharing that message to uh, our listeners. I do hope they join us on on Saturday. And I'm very honored. And also thank you for the kind words you said about me. And I feel the same about you that the care that you have for people is very obvious. And not just what you say, which you beautifully said, but in your actions, which is really how we show our love is through mm. actions. And so I see the dedication you have to all people, but to these inmates and how you've created friendships and relationships with them and also want to give them a meaning and purpose. And one way of doing that is by displaying their art, which again, you can see this Saturday, April 27th at the Loose Art Gallery, where we'll be ho- having, as Parcel will be hosting the Hidden Treasure Exhibition. Um, and I hope you will be there Again, admission is free. Just show up and, and enjoy the event starting at 7 p.m. with music and coffee and, and getting to see the artwork and then a panel discussion, which I'm very fortunate to get to be a part of. But Parsajan, thank you again for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for having me, Farijan. And I'm looking forward to this weekend. Yes, me too. Looking forward to seeing you Saturday. Thank you again for coming in. Uh, thank you to all the listeners out there. Again, if you're in the LA area, hope to see you Saturday. Also, thank you to Ghazale, who was in the studio at first, and mm-hmm. Farhud is here to wrap up the show. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.